Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely fantastic. Splendid, you could say. Um, oh, I don't think you are. Apparently, you are, you are sick. I've got the Rona. It happened, finally. And you were actually sick from it, because I got it before had no symptoms. I actually think I got it twice uh, based on the data that I collect on myself, you know, heart rate, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and obviously I've got a vaccine. I've got, I got vaccinated. Um, but you also got vaccinated. You got vaccinated with the, the double jab. I got the, uh, I got the double jab fucking single. boom. Greg goose Pfizer vaccine. Like I didn't even get the Tesco value vodka AstraZeneca, but I still got sick with it. But anyway, yeah, it, it seems to have went straight into my brain because I just have all the neural kind of symptoms of like a bit of dizziness, like kind of brain fog, headache, eye strain, kind of bits and bobs, bit of nausea. I'm grand now. Well, kind of. But uh, yeah, not particularly sick, but just slightly different than your average cold, just different symptoms. And how is your depression affected by it? My depression? Well, we've locked all the knives away um, in the house, so <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm fine. Thank God. All that inflammation, you know, it has that interaction with depression as well. No, I feel great. Good. I'm glad. Anyway, unrelated, but back on track with the actual podcast itself. We are talking about this whole training series. We've been talking about training, training volume, how to design your training program, blah, blah, blah. Right. We've talked about a lot. But what often happens with training is you get injured, right? It's not like it's an injury risk-free endeavor, right? Like you are potentially exposing yourself to forces that could injure you, right? Now, the two of us, I'm sure, would argue that you're exposing yourselves to forces, whether you like it or not, even sitting on the sofa and then standing up, you know, or, you know, you slip and fall. If you're not able to handle these forces, you are still exposing yourself to risk. So there is a risk to reward ratio here. And obviously we would advocate and say that the reward side of things far outweighs the risk. However, that doesn't understate the fact that there is some risk involved and we can do two things. And that's what we'll hopefully discuss today. We can one, lower our risk of injury, right? That's you know ideal. And we can do that a number of ways, which we'll get into. But then also we need to know what we need to do once there is some sort of injury present or like what should we be thinking of longer term or short and then long term with that injury? Like, do we just stop training, give it up for a while? Do we go back? And Obviously, that's going to be injury specific. This is just going to be a bit of an overview kind of episode. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of every single different type of injury. You need to go to a professional for that. But ideally, by the end of this episode, you know how to potentially hopefully ideally mitigate injury and then how to deal with your training if you do get injured or if you have some sort of like little niggles that you need to deal with over time but anyway look i'm actually an idiot and gary's actually you know qualified in this stuff considering he is a physiotherapist and he works i think you maybe have 20 people currently on your roster who are dealing with long-term pain or even short-term pain and injury so you know, you probably work with quite a lot of people and a lot of different issues that, you know, most uh, people listening to this trainers or trainees are going to be exposed to, you know, it's not like you're 
dealing with, you know, random, somewhat is, but you're dealing with a population that are coming to you injured and they want resolution. So it's probably representative of a good few people in the general population listening to this. Or again, if you are a coach yourself, it's probably representative of the type of people that you're going to come to you potentially injured or get injured you know, in your proximity, in the gym you work at, et cetera, you know? But anyway, Gary, seeing as you are an expert in this area and I am simply not, um, what are your thoughts? Where do we start? Yeah, so I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I would say that I have a good bit of practical experience that crosses the boundaries um, between personal training and obviously the physiotherapy world. So hopefully you'll get a few things out of this episode. Now, first things first, as you said, there's always going to be some element of risk. And if it was the case that humans were simply machines in temperature and humidity controlled environments with no external stressors, then it actually would be the case that doing less and just not exposing yourself to the risk of working more over time would be perfectly fine. You know, if you take a a well-designed machine and you leave it in a room that's, you know, controlling all variables, it's not going to degrade over time, really, um, you know, depending on the environment, but it's not really going to, to change much. You know, it'll stay there as long as there's not external stressors changing its state. However, when it comes to humans, it's not quite as simple because if you decide to just walk every day, let's say, and that's all you do, you don't do any weight training, you don't do any running, you don't do any cycling, etc., and you get maybe 5,000 steps per day, over time, there's going to be some sort of degradation in various fitness and health characteristics, regardless. So, you know, your joints won't be in the same shape that they once were. You can still get osteoarthritis. You can still get muscle loss over time. You can get an increase in body fat, all these different things that change the state of that system. So you could be in pain, you know, you could have osteoarthritis, you could have a tendinopathy of sorts, you could fall and fracture. All these things can happen to you independent of the fact that you didn't expose yourself to those higher risks. So the thing to understand with training is that when we train, we adapt to those stressors over time. And the more adapting we can do, um, especially earlier on in life, the lower our risk of, you know, subsequent health complications and musculoskeletal injury complications, the lower those risks are going to be. So that's a really important point to start with, because very often, you know, if, if someone gives you advice on how to overcome an injury or avoid injury, they tell you just to stop doing what you're doing. And that's fine. But again, we run into those barriers of one, not getting the benefits of exposing yourself to some degree of risk. And two, there being another element of risk that comes from inactivity, okay? So if you don't train, you don't get the benefits. And as a result, there's other risks, okay? That's the starting point. Most people listening to the podcast, you know that. You know that inactivity is a bad thing. You know that exercise is generally a good thing for joint, muscle, tendon, ligament, health, et cetera, over time. So hopefully you've bought into that already. Now, the next thing to consider is how much risk you're willing to tolerate, you could say, okay? Because if you're a very, you know, if you have a very low risk tolerance and you're really concerned about getting injured in the gym or in your training, then what you might do is 
always staying much further from um, ever failing reps. You stick with exercises that never cause you any discomfort. You stop sets as soon as there's any discomfort. Uh, you keep to much lower levels of volume than you could potentially recover from. Basically, you take all the training parameters and you dial them right down to the minimum. And that works. You'll get results, but you'll only get results for a certain period of time. And you, real, you will run into a plateau much sooner. So you, you're doing a good thing there in that you're exercising, you're training, you're getting benefits, but your extremely low tolerance for risk is causing you to have to deal with the trade-off of much poorer results. Now, many, many of our general population clients will actually fit into that category. Okay. So if you have just a, you know, a, someone who's coming into you, they're a mother and they just want to kind of get in better shape a little bit. They just want to feel better. They're not focused on like maximizing muscle mass or strength or performance or anything. And obviously they don't want to get injured. Then taking all those training parameters and just exposing her to kind of the minimum effective dose, totally fair, you know, totally fair decision. She doesn't need to be exposed to much risk. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got those who are going to have a much higher risk tolerance. And again, this is something that would be required for certain populations, such as athletes. So, for example, a UFC fighter or an MMA fighter of any sort or many combat sports athletes, when they go into competition, they almost, they're almost certain, unless you're just, I don't know, Kamzak Kimaev or someone else who's just murdering all their opponents they're almost certain that they're going to come out with bumps scratches bruises potentially fractures and injuries that are going to leave them having difficulty training for the next few weeks and injuries that might niggle along for a number of months or years they expose themselves to that to that very high risk of injury like almost certain that there's going to be some degree of injury but they do so because that's kind of an expected part of their sport now obviously you wouldn't expect the, the mother that we spoke about previously to show up to the gym <laughs> and experience those same bumps and bruises and bleeding and cuts and fractures, etc. Okay, There's almost no circumstance in which she's going to tolerate that level of risk. So your UFC fighter, obviously that's a really extreme example. The more standard example would be, let's say, a powerlifter that's peaking for competition. This is going to be a lot more relatable for people. Because what a powerlifter does when they compete for comp when they peak for competition um, or train, let's say the six months of training leading up to that time, they're going to be pushing themselves towards new weights that they've never lifted before. As a result, there's higher forces that they're going to be dealing with that their joints and muscles and tendons have never had to handle before. This comes with an increase in risk. Okay. You could say that there's a relatively high risk um, relative to a standard training program because they're going to be pushing higher volumes higher intensities, closer to failure, potentially, especially if they're testing their one rep max. And that really gets ramped up then when it comes to the competition day. There's obviously a much higher risk of catastrophic in injury than someone who's just going through a standard kind of bodybuilding type of program. Now, most people don't need to be exposed to those very high type, those very high risk thresholds in their training. And in for the case of the powerlifter, they basically have no other option. Like, yes, there's different ways you could, you know, program, but if you've got hip pain and you're dead set on competing, you can't not squat or deadlift. You have to do those things. And as a result, you're in that high risk category. Now, where most of us, I would imagine most listeners of the podcast 
and probably myself and yourself, Paddy, would sit most of the time, would be somewhere in the middle, you know, where we accept some level of risk that we might get injured or we might experience pain because we know that that has to be present for us to continue getting results in our athletic endeavors, whether that be improving your skill or performance in jiu-jitsu or boxing or Muay Thai or whatever, or whether it be improving your muscle mass or your strength or some other fitness characteristic that you're interested in. Most of us end up in that middle category, okay, where we're like, yeah, you know, I accept that I'm probably going to pick up a niggle or two maybe over the next training block or the next six months or the next 12 months or whatever. That's going to happen. I'll get over it. As a result, because we're in that category, we need to know how to deal with these things as they arise, because we know that it's going to happen somewhat frequently. And it's not going to be just as simple as as soon as I experience pain, I stop training. Okay. That's, that's not feasible. That's especially not feasible for people who are really keen to get great results. Because if you want great results, you have to put in a great amount of time. And one of the biggest kind of bottlenecks to long-term progress for people often ends up being injuries that kind of accumulate along the way, you know, that shoulder that keeps at them, they can never get up to a certain weight on a bench press or a certain number of sets on a bench press or certain proximity to failure, because what keeps happening is that shoulder is at them. So we need to know how to deal with those things. Okay. Just on that as well. There's one thing as well that we have going for us in an advantage way uh, in regards to our like resistance training and the types of training we might expose ourselves to in, in the gym or even you know, outside running or whatever. Like we have more control. So we actually, like if we were to do a sport, like, you know, we could obviously the extreme example of a sport, like, you know, fighting or whatever. But if you were to do just, you know, I don't know, football, you know, soccer, if you want, right? Um, if you were to do that, you have, you're exposing yourself to a degree of randomness. Like, yes, you know, you have to run forward, you have to run back side to side, turn a pace, blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe you might get, you know, a tackle here or there. But even though you can kind of identify, oh, yeah, these are the rough movements that I'm going to do. There's such a huge degree of randomness in terms of how you actually execute those movements on the field and then interact with those around you. Whereas in the gym, like you can pretty much get rid of a huge amount of randomness. Now, you're still going to be exposed to some, you know, I don't know, like someone knocks into your bar while you're, you're benching or you're deadlifting. Like there's obviously a degree of randomness there. But for a lot of the stuff, the actual degree of randomness that you're going to experience is actually modifiable, you know, like by pushing, you know, closer or further away from failure, you know, by choosing different exercises. So the fact that you have such a huge control over how much randomness is in your training versus the you know sporting athlete gives you a huge amount of control over how you actually manage your injury risk. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important point because what I always say to people, to my clients is that look, sport is chaotic and that's why it's at the end of the spectrum when it comes to returning to sport, you know, that's all like if someone let's say is going through rehab post ACL reconstruction or a similar type of injury, the way you typically will walk the person along that kind of path is, you know, they'll start by doing some, the restoration of range of motion and very light uh, resistance exercises. Okay. That's going to be kind of at the start. Then they'll expose themselves to, you know, slightly heavier resistance work. So they're trying to bring back their quad strength. You know, they might do a box squat or they might do a leg press or something like that. 
And over time, you know, they'll work up to heavier weights and they'll start to do cycling, you know, which is very, it's, it's fixed. Well, you can do that quite early on, but it's, it's a fixed plane of movement pretty much. You know, your feet are locked in, the bike isn't going anywhere. You're on a stationary bike over time, then straight line jogging, for example, some straight line jumping, then you'll go uh, maybe running with some changes of direction that are known. So you know what direction you're changing in. If you were running up to a T and you're running to your left, that's all known and predictable. But when it comes to sport itself, it's unpredictable. Okay. So you don't know what direction you might have to run in next, or you don't know how your opponent's going to react and you need to be able to react really quickly. And often the movements you're going to be doing are pretty much subconscious. Okay. You know where you want to go, but you're not, you know, controlling how much plantar flexion or how much knee flexion, et cetera. And that makes sport very chaotic and it makes it virtually impossible to predict the forces that you're going to have to deal with because you don't know if your foot's going to land you know, on your forefoot with a certain amount of knee rotation and valgus, etc. These are the types of things that happen in normal sporting movements that basically never really happen in the gym. Like if someone was squatting and they suddenly came up onto their toes and both their knees collapsed together, like that'd be a pretty big error. Like that would basically never happen. You know, more or less, you're never going to see someone do that in the gym and then finish their rep and be like, oh yeah, that's normal, you know, but that happens normally in sport all of the time. And it also happens under very high forces because you might say, oh, well, yeah, but you know, with a barbell on your back, it's totally different. But if someone's sprinting and they jump and then they have to change direction and they're in a position that they've never been in before, super high forces as well. Okay. So sport is very chaotic. That's the very simple point. Now, as you say, most of us don't have to expose ourselves to that. And specifically when it comes to talking about resistance training, we certainly don't have to be exposed to that. Resistance training is very controlled. Even if you're doing fast reps, the range of motion is still pretty much controlled. The amount of weight on the bar is controlled. You know what you're lifting. Okay. So all these things are fixed from the get-go. And as a result, you can dramatically reduce your risk of injury by simply controlling a couple of other things because the way it is fixed, the range of motion is probably fixed. Let's say, let's say you're controlling your tempo. Now what comes after that? It's the things like the amount of volume you're doing, the number of sets that you're doing, um, how close to failure you're going, uh, how much weight you're lifting. You know, is it appropriate for you to be lifting this weight? And when you put all these different things together, it actually becomes relatively easy to significantly reduce your risk of injury. You're never going to take it to zero because things happen and there's always an element of unpredictability, but you can dramatic dramatically reduce the risk. And I'll start by kind of going through those things that I initially kind of took for granted. So number one would be, let's say just the range of motion. Okay. The range of motion that you work through very often, this is standardized in that people will do a barrel bench press and they'll start from straight arms and they'll bring the bar down to their chest. It's standardized or at least it looks to be so. Um, but the reality is that that's not actually a requirement. Okay. Unless you're a power lifter, it's not a requirement that you touch your chest. And it's also not a requirement that you would do the barbell bench press in the first place. So in the case that someone found this exercise to be provocative, you know, that they had shoulder pain or recurring elbow pain on this exercise, it's actually quite simple to just say one, don't do the exercise. But in this conversation, we're trying to avoid that because that's just an easy way out. But 
what you can do here is say, I'm going to actually modify the range of motion, okay? Or the joint positioning. So for example, you might stop or pause the, the weight two or three inches off your chest. Um, generally, what you'll find is that when people have shoulder pain or any type of pain associated with the bench press, it's the bottom of the rep at which this is you know, greatest. So as a result, if someone stops a few inches short, you can modify their symptoms. So that'll be kind of a fairly simple thing to do. But that's just range of motion taken very simply from, I guess, the, the external view. The other things you could do here would be to change, for example, your elbow position. What you do when you change your elbow position, for example, elbows flared out versus elbows in against your side, is you're actually changing the angle of abduction or adduction at the shoulder. And this modifies the forces that you're going to deal with in the shoulder and the forces that you're going to deal with at the elbow. So as a result, this change is technically a change in the range of motion because you're changing the way the joints are moving. So again, that's something that could potentially be changed and could be changed in basically many different exercises. So for example, a lap pull down, you might do a wider grip versus a narrow grip. If you're doing um, a squat, you might take a wider stance or a narrower stance. All these different things can be changed that are also involved in that range of motion discussion because different muscles will be taken to different uh, lengths. For example, with the bench press, obviously, if you take your elbows and you flare them way out, you're going to be taking your shoulder closer to its end range of motion in that position. You're also going to be, you know, changing the way that you're working certain pec fibers, etc. So you could go through every single exercise and discuss all those things. But the very simple point is that range of motion and the kind of joint positioning within that is a really simple way to modify the forces that you're dealing with in the presence of injury. And it also doesn't have to be the case that you, you wait until in injury until you change these things because like there's very often a tolerable level of pain or discomfort that people will basically have long-term and not call it injury. Like, you know, you've got that bad shoulder. That's what people will say, you know, Oh, I've just got a bit of a dodgy shoulder. It's never been great. And it kind of just era gets a bit sore if I do too much, you know, that's the type of thing people will say, but they'll say, ah, it's not an injury really. And it's kind of a fair point, you know, those, these things with long-term training careers, they will kind of be present and it's kind of a normal part of the training process. But what you might do in that case is if this is constantly being flared up by the barrel of the bench press, as you touch your chest, then you might change your range of motion proactively. You might say, right, if the bottom of this rep is constantly aggravating me or the bottom of a squat or whatever, then why don't I modify this and continue to do it long-term? And then you might be able to do higher quality training volume because you're no longer getting sore as quickly and you're reducing the risk of that injury potentially getting worse in the future. So that's range of motion. Okay. The next thing would be something like tempo, which is very much related here where repetition tempo, effectively what you're doing is if you slow down the tempo, again, you're reducing the chaos or the randomness because the faster you move, the more chaos there is effectively. Okay. Because if you drop the bar down, and you, let's just say the bench press is just an easy example. Again, if you drop the bar aggressively from the top and you slap it off your chest, okay, there's, it's not, it's not hundred percent. You can't predict what direction that bar is going to bounce in. You know, it might bounce slightly to the front, slightly to the back, slightly to the left. There's just an extra element of randomness that gets put in there. 
you're also dealing with very, very high forces because that bar is accelerating very quickly towards your chest. You're not applying much deceleration or decelerating force um, against it. So as a result, the forces you're dealing with at the bottom are much, much greater because there's far more momentum that that bar is carrying. As a result, you then require a lot more force to be able to change that direction and to accelerate the bar upwards again. So with that in mind, if you slow down your reps, that means you're dealing with less of a spike in forces at the bottom. So a slower eccentric, less of a spike in force at the bottom. This becomes very relevant for people who have, again, those type pains or injuries that are aggravated at that change of direction. The bottom of a squat is a classic one. People drop aggressively into their bottom, the bottom of their squat and their knees you know, don't feel so great after it. And understandably so, because you're dropping aggressively, increasing that spike in forces at the bottom, at the knees, uh, end range of flexion. Whereas if you were to slow that down, find a comfortable end point and slowly change direction, that would modify, obviously, one, the weight that you lift, because you're not going to lift the same amount of weight. But two, the magnitude of that increase in forces that you deal with because of the momentum. So tempo can be quite a powerful thing there. It's not always very predictable how tempo will impact you either, because sometimes you'll find that if you slow down your reps too much, then maybe you um, focus on a certain muscle over another, or you find that you're concentrating too much on the area that's injured. So there's many different ways to interpret that. But as a rule of thumb, slower reps are typically going to reduce uh, risk of injury over time because of reducing, reducing that chaos. Obviously, that assumes that you're holding everything else equal. Um, and it's not just reducing the randomness or, or chaos, I should say. It's, it's also the fact that you're modifying the forces. Okay, that, that's predictable. Um, so, yeah. Temp- Practically speaking, you're probably getting more tension on the actual muscles yeah. that you want to target. And as a result of that, you're probably getting re- better results. You know, you're probably getting actual muscle growth rather than just fucking pain. Yeah. And, and again, it, you could take it even further and, and talk about that with reference to like different tissues and stuff as well. Like one of the classic ones I would deal with a lot is um, tendon injuries. So people who have tendon injuries, if you're ag- aggressively changing direction with a tendon injury, like a patellar tendinopathy or Achilles tendinopathy, that's typically a lot more provocative because the, the function of tendons, more or less, very simple way of describing it would be to kind of store and release energy. So anytime you're doing bouncing type activities like jumping up and down or you aggressively change direction at the bottom of the squat you bounce out of the bottom your tendons are taking a hell of a lot of load there so as a result um slowing down your tempo and being more controlled and predictable in those cases can be very beneficial you know um other things would be like if you have had a history of muscle strain let's say you got you've had a pec tear in the past or pec strain and you're changing direction at the bottom Doing that with control, finding that endpoint and changing with control is going to be a lot more beneficial. If you change direction aggressively and spike the forces at the point where the muscle was previously injured, for example, in that length and range, then again, that's a, putting you in the higher risk category. So tempo, definitely something that can, that can be modified here. Furthermore, the other things that you might consider are those bigger picture training principles. So volume is a huge one where people will just do so many sets for a given muscle group and then wonder why their shoulder or knee or hip or back is sore. The classic one is is the the kind of push workout that people will do, 
where people will do a flat barbell bench press and then a flat dumbbell bench press and then an inclined dumbbell bench press and then a machine chest press and then a 90 degree dumbbell shoulder press. You know, you get the picture. You're basically doing five or six different pressing movements and you might be doing four sets per exercise. So you're doing 20 plus sets of pressing or um, similar loading on that shoulder joint or chest or shoulder muscle. You're doing 20 plus sets of that within a given session. And then you might do that a second time that week. Okay. Very, very difficult to recover from that. So in general, what you want to do is one, start at a lower level of volume. Okay. If you find that you get to a certain point in your workout, maybe it's the ninth or 10th set and the shoulder starts to get at you, but you push on anyway, start below that threshold. So it might be that you start by doing eight sets um, at each workout um, per muscle. And then you build up gradually from that and you find where that threshold is, you know, and you find how much you can do to get results. So, you know, what leaves you feeling like you've gotten a good workout in, you got a good pump, you bit of soreness the next day, but not too much. And your joints aren't sore. That's kind of what you're looking for really when you're designing a workout and allocating volume. So you moderate your volume. Okay. You bring it down a bit. You're not, and most importantly, I think here, when people get told to reduce their volume or the number of sets they're doing, they think, oh, no, I can't because that's going to reduce my results. But the reality is that when we say things like more volume equals more muscle building, let's say, which is a very simple statement and not always true. But when we say that, effectively, what we're assuming is that that's high quality work and that each unit of volume is equal. Whereas that's often not the case, especially in, in, the, in cases where people are experiencing pain or injury. Because if someone has shoulder pain and they're doing 20 sets for chest, the first eight to 10 sets might be of high quality, but the remainder, the limiting factor is no longer their chest, but rather the shoulder pain that happens so frequently where someone won't be able to lift the same amount of weight or do the same amount of reps because of pain, but they still do sets over and over again. So that additional five to 10 sets or whatever at the end of your workout that are painful they may be contributing vastly less than the first five or 10 sets that you're doing at the beginning of your workout. So if you were able to cut those and focus on the higher quality stuff, you'd probably have better recovery, less pain and better results, which sounds like an absolute win to me. So moderate your volume, no harm in doing so. The other thing I was going to say on volume as well is, oh yes, diversifying. Okay. So you want to diversify your volume across a number of different exercises too. And not just exercises, but exercises that have maybe different um, paths of motion or different resistance profiles. For example, if you're doing chest and you're doing 12 sets of barbell bench press, that's clearly very different to doing 12 sets or doing four sets of barbell bench press, three sets of a machine chest press, three sets of cable flies, and I don't know, two sets of uh, bodyweight pushups at the end. They're all slightly different in the way that they're loading the chest and the way that they're loading the shoulder. And as a result, I would typically expect someone to be able to handle a higher dose of volume when it's diversified across those different movements than if someone's doing it all on the one movement. Okay. So diversification, kind of a fundamental principle there that you can apply when you're allocating your volume. So not just the absolute amount of volume, but also you know, obviously the, the types of exercises, but also the diversity of those exercises. So go ahead. on that as well, like this is a little bit um, for the newbies more so than people that actually you know, have been listening to the whole series. Yeah. 
But if you're not actually designing your training program so that you're actually getting a stimulus across the body, like, yeah, okay, you're going to have you know, certain muscle groups that you want to bring up. But if you're basically just hammering your chest and you never do any like, you know, upper back work, any lat work, even though like, obviously like the lats do internally rotate. So they are working in the bench press, et cetera. But you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no, uh, we'll call it balance at the shoulder. You're probably increasing your likelihood of injury. So that comes across in the same vein that you're saying here, like we want to have this diversity of movements and we don't want to just be like, all right, all I do is 20 sets of the bench press. You know, that might be fine if you are, you know, a power lifter and you're just like, I just want, want to get good at this one exercise. But if not, and you want to be, you know, a, a whole human, as someone that functions holistically, if you will, like you want to pick a diverse range of movements, but also you want to make sure that, all of your muscle groups are being targeted at least in some way. Like, yes, you're going to have muscle groups that become overpowering or, you know, become more dominant in your opinion or, you know, maybe stronger or whatever, but we still want to have uh, synergism, I suppose, uh, synergy um, in terms of like your shoulder doesn't just go forward. You know, there has to be something to bring it back. And that's the same with a lot of different joints and a lot of different parts of the body. Like we want to have the ability to, do all of the ranges of motion or at least most of them for that joint, for that structure, for whatever. Um, and the only way you're going to be able to do that long-term is if you actually train that stuff. Absolutely. So just diversify in your training, you know, the volume that you allocate for a given muscle group. And then obviously your overall training volume too, because like that, that is a really important point that you bring up because like one of the examples here would be like Olympic weightlifters, let's say one of the things that they do is a lot of them anyway, it depends on, on your training methodology. And there are many, but they might squat literally every day, you know, and some people will be really smart with that, where they'll do like really light, like overhead squats one day, and then they do their max squats the next day. And then maybe they do higher rep front squats, but some people will literally go in and do heavy squats every single day, you know, and, and certain people will get through that. You know, they'll be perfectly fine. They'll uh, deal with it over time, especially if you're on loads of drugs. <laughs> but a lot of people won't. A lot of people will just crash and burn, you know, and their knees will be aching every time they try to take the step, etc. And they'll keep showing up for their squat training. But they could be doing as much as, I don't know, 40, 50 sets of squats per week <laughs> of some sort. And that could be making up the vast majority of their weight training. And one of the assumptions that I guess we make in this conversation is that and that's why you emphasized it because it's important for newbies is that you're, you're training your shoulders, you're training your lats, you're training your upper back, you're training your glutes, you're training your hamstrings, you're training your quads, etc. Diversifying overall uh, towards those muscles or towards every muscle in the body, every joint in the body, that's going to give you time to recover as well between sessions, which is really important because it's not just about within the session. It's also about between sessions. So, you know, we can say that, all right, doing eight to 10 sets for chest is fine. But if you do that every single day, mightn't be so good. Okay. So yeah, that's volume. The next thing that's kind of related, it's, you know, you can't discuss one without the other really is intensity. And that's both in terms of the proximity to failure. So that's what people often mean when they say intensity, because they're saying, God, that was an intense set. And what they mean is they worked really hard and they went close to failure or to failure, or in some cases beyond failure. So in, that's the first part of intensity. The second part then is how much weight you're actually lifting. Okay. So are you doing a 300 kilo squat or are you for one rep or are you doing um, 
20 kg leg extension for 30 reps. Okay. There might be different levels of risk associated with those things. Now, in general, the higher the intensity with respect to both of those uh, definitions of intensity, the higher risk of injury. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that doing a program that has lower reps inherently exposes you to higher risk because you could be doing lower reps, but you could have maybe less volume and you're doing less reps, but you're staying further from failure. Whereas someone else doing higher reps, they could be going to failure and doing way more volume and choosing exercises that don't really suit them. So they might be exposed to higher risk. So when it comes to choosing uh, or designing a program here, let's say to reduce risk of injury or to overcome injury or pain that you've sustained, what you typically want to do again is diversify. Okay. So it comes back to what we just discussed. If you're doing sets of in the one to five rep range you don't want to do that in every exercise and you certainly don't want to do that every single day of the week okay sometimes people will do that where they'll say oh i'm running a strength block so they're doing sets of three on bench sets of three on squats sets of three on deadlifts sets of three on pull downs sets of three on rows all the way across the board and you're basically multiplying the risk that you're exposed to as a result because you're taking the risk that might be associated with higher absolute intensities, and you're now applying it across every single set of every single workout. Okay, so that increases the chance that there's going to be something that gives. That's not just due to the forces that you're dealing with as well. There's also tends to be a higher burden on recovery. So if you're doing um, a one rep max, anyone that's done this has genuinely tested their one rep max. You feel like crap after, you know, it's kind of hard to describe it. And you can go into the research and say, is this peripheral fatigue? Is it central fatigue? What's causing this phenomenon? But the reality is that you feel like crap. You do a one rep max deadlift. You just don't feel good. And there's it that does not correlate with one rep of one set. Okay. So it's not the same as doing a set of eight or even three sets of eight with two reps in reserve. Do you feel way worse after that one rep max assessment if you genuinely push yourself? So as a rule of thumb, you know, if you're doing those types of exposures where you're going close to failure in, in the one to five rep range, they should be used very sparingly. I wouldn't typically be doing that on the same lift more than once per week, you know? Um, and to be honest, you shouldn't be testing your one rep max <laughs> once a week anyway, or even once a month, you know, it should be very sparingly, to be honest. So I was talking about diversifying. So what you might do is if you're doing your sets of three on squats, let's say at the start of your workout on that same day, you might do leg press higher reps so you might do sets of 12 and leg press and then your leg extensions you're doing sets of 20 so you've kind of diversified there so you're focusing on the higher intensity for the squats and then the lower intensity or at least absolute intensity um, in terms of the, the amount of weight lifted on your leg press and your leg extensions additionally something else that's kind of quite useful here is using your reps in reserve or rpe or relative intensity measures as well because as a rule of thumb, again, the further you are from failure, the lower risk of injury. Okay, the closer you are to failure, the higher risk of injury. Obviously, this is very simple. That there's a very simple element of that where catastrophic catastrophic injury can occur if you drop the bar on yourself. Okay, so if you're going to failure on an overhead press and you've genuinely given everything and the bar drops down on top of you, of course, there's a risk there that you're just going to fall. You know, same with a squat. Squat is a classic one where people will fail a squat and they've never practiced dumping the bar before and now they don't know what to do. <laughs> They're sitting down on the ground and the bar's on top of them. Okay, not a great situation. This is also why everyone loves deadlifts because it's so easy to fail on deadlifts. Yeah. Let go. 
hundred percent. And it's it's funny because like deadlifts, people will drastically change their technique from their one rep max to what they normally use because you can. It doesn't matter, you know, because you can just drop the bar anytime. Whereas a squat, if you let that weight fold you over completely, you can't recover from that. Okay. You can't, but you would a deadlift. You just you might it. never recover from that if you did that. <laughs> you might <squat>. never. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, it's generally staying further from failure is going to reduce your risk of injury. But again, we don't want to push ourselves into that low risk category where we're never pushing anywhere close to failure because then we don't get great results. Okay. So in general, most of your sets probably within one to three reps in reserve, three to five reps in reserve. Sometimes, especially if you're doing like skill work, you might do five reps in reserve where you're, you know, relatively low effort. You're just trying to nail your technique. But most of the time you're some, most clients are going to be somewhere in that kind of one to three range, um, maybe one to four. And that's going to be kind of their starting point. So you don't push yourself all the way to failure every set, because if you do, you're going to be way more fatigued. Uh, it's not just that catastrophic injury, as I said, it's also the fact that you're dealing with more of a recovery burden. And as a result, every unit of volume that you might quantify is going to carry higher fatigue along with it and thus higher risk of um, pain and or injury. So intensity it's, it's something that's really important to consider. I'm not going to go through all the principles of applying intensity in your training because we've discussed this in this whole series. But when it comes to not just reducing risk of injury, but also overcoming an injury, it actually becomes a really powerful tool now. Because one of the things that I'll do most often is if someone's, you know, experience, experiencing back pain, let's say, and they're unable to do heavy deadlifts, very simple. We do lighter deadlifts and we do them further from failure and we control our tempo and everything else that we discussed previously. So when you put all these things together, they can certainly be quite powerful in terms of reducing overall risk and helping you to overcome. So I think they're kind of most of my big, the big heavy lifters really when it comes to the things that you modify. Um, any questions, Patty? Anything? Because no, obviously that's a hell of a lot of things there. There's, there's a lot there. What we might do in the next episode, perhaps, is just go through like a, a few different things in terms of like, oh, you've got an acute injury. What do we do now? Oh, a chronic injury. What do we do now? We might do that in the next episode. I'll listen back to this one, see exactly what we covered. But the final thing I want to kind of cover uh, with this is how do you prevent injury, right? And what I mean by that is like, we just spent whatever 40 minutes talking about how to prevent injury, how to think about your training to modify it if you do get injured, et cetera. But is it as simple as saying to prevent injury? And the reason I'm thinking about this is because, you know, if you go to, I don't know, rugby or, you know, any field sport, they'll say, oh, you need to do your gym work because it helps prevent injury, right? Like, what are they actually talking about there? In my mind, it's basically, you know, strengthening the body and then obviously helping it as a result of strengthening it, be more resilient to these different forces that we engage in, right? So is it as simple as saying, if you want to prevent injury and you know you're going to be exposed to these random forces, you just need to get stronger in general. Or can we be more specific with that? Should we be exposing ourselves to the different ranges we see or the different movements we see in the actual sport or endeavor that we're trying to do? Like if you're a general population person and you just want to, you know, not get injured on your daily life. Yeah. Okay. Generally get stronger. That probably makes sense. But if we're a sporting athlete, whatever the sport is to get stronger, do we, 
forego these you know generic strengthening exercises and do we focus on like i don't know you see you're a golfer or something and you're on the cable and you're just doing like wood choppers or something like what's the story here like how do we what, what does it mean first of all is it as simple as just getting stronger that'll help you prevent injury and then what does that actually look like for the general population and then an actual like you know athlete yeah it's a great question because i think one of the things we come back to in this podcast a lot is that resistance training or weight training gym work etc as most people do it it's general physical preparedness or general general physical preparation gpp that's all it is all right so when you're doing if you're just in the gym and that's all you do that's your thing you shouldn't be exposing yourself to that high risk like you shouldn't need to because it's that's what other people use to prepare themselves for their sport or to prevent injuries in their sport now the question that you ask is more specific to those who are not just doing the gym. So you're doing the gym for a certain purpose. So for example, golf or jujitsu is an easy example because we do it. Like I think a good example of this actually would be one of the things I kind of started doing more recently. Now I'm not super consistent with it is just neck strengthening work. Okay. I, I don't have a, I've got a kind of a bit of a long skinny neck, you know, it's not great get guillotined a lot as a result, leave my head out, you know, get my, get it pulled off. <laughs> so there's all, and, and, and in jiu-jitsu and grappling, there's always a risk of um, neck injury. Neck injury and neck pain is one of the things that becomes a limiting factor for many grapplers. Now, that's not a risk that I would have ever considered myself to, ex- to be exposed to in the past. So that was an, a zero consideration before I started doing grappling. You know, I, other than maybe wanting a thick neck, basically very little reason to no reason for me to be spending loads of time in neck strengthening. Okay. But for grappling, there actually is. So in this case, there's a specific requirement for the sport, specific risk of injury in the sport, and there's specific exercises that we can do to potentially mitigate that risk. Again, it's not guaranteed, but we can certainly reduce the risk by getting stronger. That same thing would not apply to the general population. So that's an example of something that's quite specific um, in, a, in a given sport. Other examples would be, for example, field sports, hamstrings, super common, hamstring strains, very, very common. Same in sprinters, anyone who's running really. So again, hamstring strengthening, really important. Okay. Doing maybe heavy eccentrics, doing the length and range, etc., exposing yourself to the positions in which you're likely to get injured. And that's kind of an overarching principle that I apply to rehab, or you might call it prehab in this case, where what you're trying to do is expose your your body to as many stressors as possible, particularly those that they're going to experience in the activities that you're concerned with. So if it's grappling, you might be concerned about getting stacked on your neck or getting guillotined or getting neck cranked, etc. If it's... Um, field sport it might be that you overstretch on a landing or you're changing direction quickly or you know you jump up and you land awkwardly something like that if it's give me another sport if it's golf maybe right that you're exposing yourself to rotation at the spine over and over again okay that's something that you don't get exposed to very frequently in other sports at least not to the same degree to just one side you know that's kind of one of the unique things about golf Um, baseball i guess would be similar so overall, you can look at each individual sport and you can ask yourself, what are the primary positions in the sport that someone is likely to get injured? Okay. And then you can ask yourself, how could I prepare for that? So for example, in golf, it might be that, you know, 
working on trunk rotation strength um, is actually something that's really beneficial. You're not going to find much research on that, to be honest, because it's such a specific question, but it's something that you could make the case for, you know, that you might want to prepare someone for that. Um, in jiu-jitsu, grappling, again, neck strengthening might be something that's important. There might be other things like if you're... Um, if you're a, a grappler and you're constantly getting hit with, I don't know, upper limb strangles of some sort, and you've really inflexible shoulders, then maybe flexibility might be something that would be of benefit um, to you for your sport there. Not necessarily going to prevent injury as such, but it might, you know, even improve your performance. So there's a further element to that whole discussion, which is needs analysis too, you know, are there specific limiting factors for you as an individual within your sport? So that individual assessment uh, component, really important, individual in terms of yourself and individual in terms of your individual sport as well. What are the requirements? So overall, yeah, strength work, definitely useful for uh, reducing risk of injury in sport. Reducing risk of injury in, in everyday life as well is also an interesting thing to consider because there's always going to be some exposure that we have at some point in time, even if you're living the most casual life where you never physically exert yourself. Someday you'll be asked to move the fridge. Someday you'll be asked to move the couch or bring in the coal bucket or something, you know? Like, man, literally it's coming into winter now, you know, gets a little bit icy, you know, maybe some leaves on the yeah. ground slip like you have to have the ability the strength in your adductors your hamstrings wherever it is that you know potentially gets injured now you have to have the strength for that 100 percent. and if you have more strength and you've trained for those things you're going to have a lower risk of getting injured as a result okay it's very simple if you deal if you build up the strength to tolerate high forces then medium forces aren't going to injure you if you've only built up the strength to tolerate low forces medium forces are going to injure you okay so it's, it's pretty simple and obviously there's a capability component there where you're not just preparing yourself to not get injured you obviously want to be able to do those things i hope so yeah overall everyday life also really important one of the things that people maybe aren't so sure of is what about long-term joint health People don't often know what they mean, really, when they say that. They're like, oh, oh I want to improve my joint health. And one of the things that I guess is really catastrophic for many people long term is something like maybe advanced osteoarthritis. So, for example, if you get really bad arthritis in your hip or really bad arthritis in your knee, that can be kind of debilitating for a lot of people. Um, other things like rheumatoid arthritis and other types of inflammatory arthritis arthritis is arthritis arthritis i wonder how you say that arthritis is <laughs> um, various forms of arthritis all plural in advance um if you if you're concerned about those types of conditions long-term exercise is actually really beneficial now that does not mean that all long-term forms of long-term exercise are going to um reduce risk of arthritis because for example in certain sports if you have to push yourself into the high risk category and maybe you tear your ACL and you tear your meniscus and you're constantly injuring your knees over and over, that's going to increase your risk of arthritis long-term, but so does inactivity and so does obesity and so does poor metabolic health, et cetera. So thinking of these things purely in terms of forces, it just doesn't really cut it. And in general, building up strength over time is really beneficial because what we see is that cartilage adapts to stress you know tendons ligaments adapt to stress bone adapts to stress um intervertebral discs even they adapt to stress so all these different structures that we might be concerned about injuring long term 
they're not just static. It's not just our muscles that change. Our joints adapt to, our muscle, our tendons adapt to, our bones adapt to. And that's really, really important, especially with age, because, you know, things like vertebral fractures or hip fracture, these are the types of things that start to bother people in old age, because you're going to move along the spectrum of osteopenia to osteoporosis to some degree, um, especially kind of most postmenopausal women is part of the highest risk. Everyone moves along that spectrum. And one of the protective factors is developing as much peak bone mass early on in life. Um, so one of the things that does that is weight training and exercise in general. So yeah, exercise for long-term joint health, a neck protective factor, but with some degree of risk as well, especially if you're doing like parkour or something, you know, no guarantees. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, and then the final thing I just wanted to touch on, even though I said that last thing was the final thing, it's just kind of brought on from this. There is another kind of category and this is like, if you do have, we'll call it genetic familial, whatever you want to say, like issues that, you know, are somewhat treated by getting stronger in general or at least getting things into different ranges for example like i have vikings disease you know so for me i know that that's a we'll say a risk factor for you know having a hand that's kind of closed over like this right so i know for me i need to strengthen the you know straightening out muscles in my hand muscles if you will in my hand um, and then also make sure that this you know tendons ligaments everything gets stretched you know and that's obviously just one thing very you know niche but if you're not um exposing yourself to forces that are going to help with the different genetic familial whatever the fuck uh, issues that you have going on like they're not going to inherently get better you know they're not just gonna like if you just leave them alone and be like oh i'll just it'll get better like obviously that works for some things, but there is generally certain exercises, certain movements, whatever that you can do to help with the issues that either you have, or, you know, you have a family history or a risk factor for, you know, obviously that is a very niche, niche uh, topic. Most people are not going to be like, Oh, I have this, you know, familial condition where I don't know, our shoulders don't work properly or something. I don't fucking know, you know, like it's very, very niche. Um, I just happen to have two things. I've always got slatter disease and I have Vikings disease. Um, so I'm just a little bit more aware of that because I know for myself, like if I didn't expose myself and strengthen my body in you know different ways, um, those two things could very potentially be somewhat debilitating. You know, like I even know, like I have always got slatter worse on one of my knees. Um, and I know for example, myself, if I sit for long periods of time, like on an airplane, now, granted I am whatever, six or five and a bit, um, that it's just not going to feel good, you know? Whereas like that is the very small period of time where that doesn't feel good because I generally strengthen my body. I generally, you know, get stronger. I generally build muscle, blah, blah, blah. Do all the stuff that helps with that. But I know for a fact, if I didn't do that, the knee would just be sore when I'm sitting down. The knee would just be sore in everyday life, you know? So getting stronger and actually building a, you know, a resilience to the joint, the structures, et cetera, like, is obviously very beneficial for my general everyday life, you know, and that is the case for a lot of things. And even though we've just been focusing a bit more on the sports specific there for a second, like even if you are just a general population person, and if you have little niggles, little injuries or whatever, like you can keep on top of them, do some rehab, some prehab work and get significantly better, you know, daily life function as a result. Yes, sir. Fantastic. Anyway, look, I have nothing else to say on that. There's a few other things that we can definitely go into in another episode. So that's perhaps what we will do. Um, but to wrap this one up, Gary, do you have anything to say finally? 
just that if you are interested in working with us we do have coaching spaces available particularly me and i mean not that i have particularly spaces available but if you listen to this episode and you're like oh i need to get my training in order and stop dealing with this knee pain that i've been dealing with or whatever then uh i'm your guy you know no guarantees that we're going to make you pain free for life but uh we can certainly give you the tools to be able to manage these things long term um so yeah if you're interested we all have coaching spaces available so uh do get in touch it's november now and it's the middle of november by the time this podcast comes out and uh we're coming up to christmas and we're coming up to the new year so it's a good time to get involved or at least reach out and inquire about the coaching process even if you're interested in starting in the new year we like to get people set up in advance so you can just get in touch and uh we will get you sorted information in the description box below yeah, additionally just, everyone every single year it happens everyone goes oh yeah look i'll get in touch with them in january february or whatever it is and every single year i'm like oh yeah look i can't get on a call with you until march or whatever you know and they're like what wait what and i'm like look everyone else is already booked in they were thinking about this in november last year you know I, like I, can't, I can only do so many calls i can only talk to so many people to see if they're a good fit for us so if you're interested you know you need to get in touch quicker or sooner rather than later yes sir and uh if you're a coach we do have the coaches corner as well which is a member site for coaches that is evolving with anatomy physiology nutrition exercise programming case studies the lot okay so if you're interested in supporting your education as a trainer then do get involved there's 15 euros a month pennies peanuts easy work for your education you'll probably make more money because you're a better coach then so you know makes sense other than that guys we do obviously have a lot of free content that we put out okay so make sure that you're following along with our social media at the moment instagram in particular we put out a lot of content there we're going to be putting out even more we currently put out about a post a day and we're going to try and increase that a touch so do keep up make sure that you're following share posts that you enjoy really does help us when you share because more people come across the page and then they're like oh my god how have i never found these amazing i was gonna say guys but we actually have one girl on the team so guys and girls before yes anyway look i have nothing else to say i hope everyone enjoyed this episode and we will speak to you in the future <laughs>